Hello and welcome to a new episode of Science with Milk, No Sugar. I'm your hostess Francisca and today we have an absolutely amazing, kind and super well-spoken guest and her name is Rachel Lippert and she is an American-born neuroscientist from Ohio who is a junior group leader here in Berlin where I recorded. She's actually calling in from Brussels where she's at a meeting big conference like lots of scientists go on all the time and we're going to mention that briefly in the interview as well because it's not so easy to <laughs> record remotely nonetheless the episode was really really good and she's going to tell us all about her background in chemistry and very surprising to me literature so how she did that she's going to talk about where she got her phd at vanderbilt university what she's doing now here in berlin what her research is We're talking about how you become a junior research group leader. Like, how do you even do that? I had no idea. She's going to explain it to me and you in depth. And I learned so much about her work because she works not just on the brain. She also studies how diet influences the brain in pregnancy. And pregnancy can be a really hard time for people. How that comes into effect when you also then have to worry about or not worry about what you're eating is one of our talking points and what it's like to work with mice. So I know lots of scientists who will listen now or people who know scientists know that they're working with animals in the lab. And Rachel is going to explain all about how you even do that, what goes into it, what are the restrictions and the ethics and why it's important. And it's such an important episode. So I really, really hope you're gonna enjoy this. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, we don't discriminate. Lean back and learn from Rachel and all her amazing experience as a research group leader. By the way, I'm drinking coffee. You're not required to, just in case you you see me every now and then. Like, <laughs> I I wish that I had coffee. This hotel room also does not provide a coffee maker with, so I went and got a coffee this morning. But uh... but uh, you're joining us from far away today. You're actually not in in Berlin right now, right? Like mm-hmm. you, where are you right now? So I am sitting in a hotel room in Brussels. <laughs> Oh, and you, okay, okay. So that's why you have no coffee, I assume. <laughs> Just alone in the hotel room. I mean, I, I went out and got one and I drank it too fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've made that mistake before. Yeah. But yeah, thanks so much for joining all the way from Brussels. You're there for a conference, is that true? So I came here, um, actually, it's a meeting with the Leibniz office that's here, um, because mm-hmm. I'm at a Leibniz Institute, and I was in the what's called the Leibniz Mentoring Program, which was for female scientists within Leibniz Institutes, and one of the workshops was to come and learn about funding from the EU side, um, and unfortunately, this was supposed to happen for my cohort two years ago, um, but we've had to postpone it something like five times because of COVID, uh, mm-hmm. and it finally happened, so I, I made sure to, to come for this but it, it was also a bit hectic because I was also at a meeting just before coming here so it's, yeah yeah oh, life, life as a scientist I already introduced you a little bit to people who are listening right now but maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background we're going to go into why we're talking today but others might not know this about you yet so how did you start out being a scientist what did you study how did you dive in to the field of academia 
I, I mean, I would say into the field of academia, I kind of more fell into it than <laughs> dove into it. No one in my family is an academic. Um, I come from a very blue-collar family in Ohio, so I really knew nothing about what studying meant. But I really enjoyed science in school, and I had good teachers. I mean, this comes often, I think, in many stories of, of scientists that they had very good teachers that got them excited about it. I, I mean, going to, to college just seemed like uh, something to try. And fortunately, I was able to get lots of financial aid or else I would not have been able um, to go. And I'm from a very, very tiny town in Ohio, uh, which is, I would say there's more cornfields than people. But uh, I, I made the decision I want to go far away from home. So I went to Michigan, which if you don't know the US, it's, it's like one border. Yeah. <laughs> so it's basically, if you live in Berlin, you decided to go to to Brandenburg. And yeah, so I, I went there to study and I actually, so I have two degrees from my undergrad because I really enjoyed reading and English literature. So I have a degree in English literature and, and a degree in chemistry. That's amazing. I didn't know that you had a degree in literature as well. Living yeah. my dream. Like in my, in my other life, I would do that. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, to be honest, it's, it's also interesting to see how often that comes to play a role in my current position, right? Um, understanding how to reach people through words. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I studied at my undergrad and I had, so I went to a liberal arts school, which is not so common in, in, in Germany, I, mm -hmm. I think. But uh, at a liberal arts school, you're really kind of forced to take all sorts of, sorts of subjects and, and classes um, in topics that you probably wouldn't normally um, take. And so that allowed me to have very diverse fields of study. Um, and there, I mean, up to that point, I didn't know anybody who had ever done a doctorate and I didn't have any idea what doing a PhD was. But I was graduating in 2008, which in the US was the massive economic crisis. Um, and it made the job market really bleak for all new graduates. And at that time, um, I had been fortunate the year before I graduated to go to California for what's called an, an NSF REU. So it was a National Science Foundation Research Experience for Undergraduates. Mm -hmm. It was basically, I would say, equivalent to an Erasmus program. Um, I got to go for three months and work in a lab. And it was really my first time ever working in a research lab. And I had a really great experience. Um, and so then I also got to meet more people that had done a PhD. And I was like, okay, this this sounds cool. And so when I was confronted with the, the job market sucks, <laughs> um, <laughs> what are my other options? Uh, and I mean, I really liked school. I like learning. Um, and then it was suggested that I consider taking the GRE um, and applying uh, to graduate school. Uh, I did that. I, funnily enough, um, uh, most of my applications, because it's quite expensive to apply to graduate school in the U.S., and I found one that was a free application, uh, and it was to the university that I went to, Vanderbilt University. And, to be uh, honest, I kind of applied with the, hey, if I get an interview, it will be cool, because my I had family that lived there, and if you get invited to interview in the States, they usually at least back then, I don't know if they still do this, but they would fly you there for the weekend um, or oh. for two days to do a whole very intense interview day. But I thought, okay, it's worth a shot and we see if I get in. And then I, I was invited to interview there and, and at another university and, and I had a good experience and I got in the program and then I accepted it with all not really knowing what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> that is maybe the most unusual story I've heard so far. 
that you kind of like, oh yeah, I didn't really know what a PhD was, but I decided I'll do it. Yeah, <laughs> I, really I, cool. I mean, it, it was also, you know, considering that I was continuing my education, I mean, I don't know if this speaks, if it reflects poorly on the the, the U.S. generally, but um, as a Ph.D. student, I was earning more than most people in my family, and that, oh, and that to me was amazing that I that I could that I could earn enough to live and still be learning and doing you know create creating things and asking questions and being able to research them. So like the opportunity to do that seemed kind of silly yeah. to pass up, right? Like yeah. this this chance to continue doing what I just like doing and be mm. able to have a career out of it. So Yeah. I mean, yeah, like you said, like is that is that good or does that mean the minimum wage definitely needs to go up? I think both yeah. to a degree. But good for you. I'm glad that made you stick in academia and What are you doing now? Did did your research change throughout the years or what you're doing now is completely new to you? <laughs> or did you start doing your PhD? When I have to label myself now as what kind of scientist I am, I would say that I'm a neuroscientist. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm in a neuroscience cluster of excellence. Uh, I lead a lab that's called Neurocircuit Development and Function. But uh, funnily enough, I was thinking about this, and I have never in my life taken a formal neuroscience course, ever. <laughs> so, okay. I, 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 again, this goes to the point of, I think that I was kind of pushed in or fell in <laughs> to this field. Um, I mean, generally, I've always really enjoyed science, but like what aspect of science has always, you know, been kind of open. But I think it was just, you know, when I was going to graduate school, I thought I had an idea about what I would want to do. And I got into an umbrella program. So it allowed you to have eight week long rotations in labs before you decided which lab you would do your PhD in. Um, and I thought I was going to work in bacteria and study transcription. And so I went to that lab. That was my first choice lab. And so I rotated there and said, okay, I think this fits me. And then I still had to do the other rotations. Um, and a friend of friend of mine who is still my best friend actually uh, said, okay, there's this new guy. He's the new head of the department. You should check him out. Uh, and to be honest, I, we had like an open day where we could go to all the posters of the labs and see them. And I went to this guy's poster and it was all about zebrafish. And I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> I don't want to work in zebrafish. But then my, my friend really pushed it again and was like, no, you know, the lab is more than just that. Check it out. I think that you would like it. Um, and so I did end up doing a rotation there because I was like, okay, anyway, I have to do a rotation. Mm -hmm. um, and then I just, I, I got to work with, so the, The guy that led the lab was uh, Roger Cohn, and in the lab was also uh, um, a postdoc who had transitioned into uh, leading her own group, so Kate Ellicott, and I got to work directly with Kate, and she was the most amazing mentor that I could have had, and she was just so passionate about and knew so much, and like with her, I got to see neurons for the first time under the microscope, and I was like, oh, wow, this is so <laughs> cool, and you know, to just learn, because I, I think what kept me from wanting to go in that lab was I really didn't know very much about what they studied, 
Um, so it was my first sort of foray into how the brain controls basically everything, but uh, particularly our food intake. And then I was just really interested in how all of these cells in the brain could come together and basically make me behave the way I was whenever I was eating or not eating. And so, I mean, I really started the ball rolling in this direction. Um, and then I really think the economy has also influenced a lot of my, <laughs> my professional choices because when I was finishing my PhD, the NIH, which is the national funding body in the US, had made had a very, very high level of funding cuts. And I also then knew many people who had lost their research labs. They either had to shut down or they had to shut down at a particular university and move somewhere else um, because the funding was just not there to support continuing. And that seemed to me really bleak, um, the outlook. And so I, I really had a hard moment of, you know, do I do I want to, to put myself into this wheel of uncertainty um, or do I want to take this as a chance to um, do something really different? Mm -hmm. And so the really different was if I stay in the U.S., I, you know, maybe I can get a job with the government and work in science policy, science education, or if I stay in research, that I go outside the U.S. and I learn about a different research system. And it just so happened that I went to a meeting. I looked at all of the foreign PIs who were giving talks, and then I read about all of their research, and then I shortlisted them to the ones that I wanted to meet, and I asked my then mentor to introduce me. Um, and then one of that shortlist, I really enjoyed meeting them uh, and got invited to give a talk and then got offered a position as a postdoc. And then I went to Cologne uh, in Germany and that started my whole like venture in, in Germany. So and that then was the first point at which I started taking this idea of food intake in the brain and then also applied this metabolism aspect to brain development. And so that got me into the field of how the food that we eat or the food that people eat when they're pregnant can actually affect the developing brain and change how their food intake behavior or how their physiology is when they grow up. And so my lab now is kind of a fusion of these two ideas, understanding how food intake is regulated by the brain, but how our behavior overall is influenced by our nutritional environment early on. To which my mom, every time I tell her this, she's like, well, you know, when I was pregnant with you, I only ate Funyuns and drank Mountain Dew. <laughs> Two of my favorite food groups. <laughs> yeah. I was like, actually, this might make sense why I really like crunchy food now. My mom kept drinking the same amount of coffee she always has and had. And uh, look at me now. Like, <laughs> I had two science communication programs uh, that were both involved like involving coffee like i have coffee right now i had one at the natural history museum where i got paid to drink coffee and talk to scientists you know and i'm like mother yeah. <laughs> i wonder where i got that from <laughs> so yeah that's really interesting i mean how do people react when you tell them that you work on that like if someone is being unhealthy or even you know as a as a joke how you said your mom said she only you know drank um like soda Uh, and ate like junk food if, if that uh, influenced the development of the brain or you know of, of the child or like do people feel triggered by that because when you know pregnancy is already a hard time I think for lots of people if they then hear oh god okay if I eat something wrong 
I might hinder the development of my child or, you know what I mean? Like, do people get defensive if you tell them what you do, what your research is? Or do people just get really excited and want to hear what they should eat? So I think this is an interesting question because I think I, I get a, a variety of responses. I either get the response of, oh, that totally makes sense now why my child is X, Y, or Z. Um, <laughs> Or from friends, they, they will say, now I get why my older brother is that way, but I'm this way because I know that my mom did this while she was pregnant or something. Mm -hmm. um, I, I get a, so obviously a certain level of, of interest in the question of, of what is right then, um, which I would say is really, really difficult. to. There is no one simple, correct answer to give. Um, because there's still so much that we don't know. And, and I am not a medical doctor, so I am in no way like going to give what is in essence medical advice. Mm -hmm. Nutrition in that aspect um, is, is going in that direction. And then three, what I really encounter a lot is um, sort of, a, I don't know, a deflection to that's just how it is that, that so that's just how society is okay with that. Like, or, or, um, that it's the last thing that people really want to be concerned with because mm -hmm. we all have to eat. Right. And, mm -hmm. and I, and like you said, I, pregnancy is like an insanely difficult time when you're, when I, as a, as a person who's pregnant, you're, you have to learn so much in such a concentrated period of time. And then there's like constant fear about you could do anything wrong. You know, you, you're too stressed or you don't sleep enough or you drink too much coffee or, mm -hmm. or you don't drink enough water or, or you didn't take the right supplements or anything. Um, and, and so it's, it's also really, it's a really sensitive topic because you, there are so many caveats of, food intake and in pregnancy and in understanding what's healthy for one person wow. may not apply to every person and you have a lot of interesting scenarios in pregnancy no. too people that have morning sickness for months and months and how they have to cope with that yeah. or people that have food aversions or food cravings and how does that play into the thing but i really think this fallback to what society says is okay it it I, I encounter this a lot. And, and actually, I, I mean, as a scientist, I would argue that like we need to have these discussions because why does society say it's okay? Like, why is it eating for two? Because you're not eating for two, you're eating for like 1.1. Yeah. Um, this makes me think about my friend who just had a baby and at the end, she would just go ham, you know, she would eat anything she could. And she tried to be really, really healthy and be a good weight and all that before the baby came or before she, you know, progressed in her pregnancy. But one of her um, reasons was also weight gain, like, you know, like lots of people who get pregnant also think oh I'm gonna like gain all this weight and I think partly it's because yeah that's normal and then partly it's all the stuff you eat and when I was younger I was like oh yeah I mean the only good thing about pregnancy is that you can eat whatever you want <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I think like many of us who grew up in the you know late 90s early 2000s who have a very weird relationship with our bodies <laughs> yeah and um 
I always sound like, oh, okay, I have to be be really restrictive and think about what I'm eating. But then when you're pregnant, you know, that goes out the window and you yeah. can do whatever you want. And then... Because it is a period of like no judgment, right? Yeah, yeah. No because... one, no one, no one gives a woman a hard time if she's like, I, yeah. I want a second helping. I want a second piece of cake. Or yeah, and in movies you see it all the time. You know, where I'm like, oh yeah, eating like Ben and Jerry's and pickles at mm-hmm. one a.m. or something, and I thought, oh, I'm gonna make my husband go out and get me all those <laughs> things. <laughs> and then I remember. When I met you and you told me what you're working on, I thought it was really interesting, but I was so crestfallen when you were like, oh yeah, you don't actually, you know, you're not supposed to eat for two. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Excuse me? (laughs) And that makes total sense. But yeah. I I guess like, this is just coming to me as you mentioned that, but but in some ways I can understand why Why? it is really difficult to to discuss. It is a really sensitive topic because that's something that maybe many people don't want taken away from them. Yeah. (laughs) this freedom space and you have to give up so much like my friend said oh yeah i can't eat sushi and i can't eat that and you can't drink and you're not supposed to have so much coffee you're not supposed to do this and this and this Mm -hmm. but i'm gonna not let anybody take the calories away you know (laughs) i feel like you're giving up so much so maybe you're thinking like i can't give up the fries on the side if i'm having the burger you know it's like maybe it's also that because you're giving up lots of things you're not supposed to eat but I guess from 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 my perspective, then it it would make like it makes sense from from the research side to come at it not as what to give up, but what you mm. what you can eat, what's what's there, what's you know what are the options, what are the good things, like what um, because it is yeah this period of time where you just get told like don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, and and it's a lot of you know okay then what can I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I kind of envision coming to the point where we can empower women, uh, you know, or or people that are pregnant and and say, like, you know, this is the range of, like, wonderful things that you can still have. Yeah. You can still, you know, and a a craving is is that it's the balance of, okay, if I eat this one thing, it's going to make me feel better in this moment is different Mm -hmm. than constantly eating like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so the the one I am pickles and ice cream, <laughs> as a as a once off, and or you know a, a handful of times in pregnancy is is, I would say it's, okay. It's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As a not non medical doctor, you still think <laughs> <laughs> that's you could say that's okay. Yeah. A quick ad break to talk about today's sponsor. Oh my god. They have been so, so supportive and my biggest cheerleaders to make this podcast happen. So huge thanks to the cluster of excellence, NeuroCure. They're investigating neurological and psychiatric disease mechanisms and some misleading findings from basic research into clinical application. I mean, wow. I've known about them for quite a while because they also support Soapbox Science which is one of my biggest passions. I've been a member since 2019 and they've been just going strong and making just life for women in science possible and so, so much easier, especially for our group and for me. And I thank them so much for sponsoring this podcast. They've been nothing but supportive and kind. And if you haven't heard of NeuroCure, you absolutely have to look them up. My links are in the show notes. 
if you want to learn more about them you won't regret it and yeah let's get back to the episode um so what is a junior research group leader and how do you become one and i was wondering if you also kind of fell into that or if that's something that you decided you wanted to do so what what even is that and how do you become one yeah so a junior research group leader is a place of purgatory between postdoc and professor <laughs> um, uh, and yeah i would say it's so all i as a postdoc i i finally i made a decision i want i want this i want to try an academic career which was really important for me to kind of make that mental switch uh because i i did a lot of workshops during my postdoc about career paths and to really solidify what i want to try for Uh, because there are many, many options, right? So you, that that you can pursue, and and I just needed to pick one that I would invest my time in, and so I made that decision. Actually, I think I was at a workshop in Göttingen, and I made that decision at that workshop. Like, this is what I'm going to try for. And I don't know if you know vision boards, like mm -hmm, having mm -hmm. a visualization of what you want. So, I, in that workshop, I went to like a. Uh, a souvenir shop and I bought a postcard of Göttingen <laughs> and I put it on my whiteboard at home as my like visual cue like you made that decision this is what you want and then I I let a few people in my circle know that you know I'm thinking about this and I would like to start applying a professor that I knew well a group leader at the the institute at the time who's now a, a dean in Cologne she had a call for applicants for the position that I'm in now and she sent it to me and said I think this fits what you're interested in. Check it out. And it fit perfectly. Like I, Because I had made this mental decision, I want to try this. And I had thought of it about what I would want to research in my own group. When this came to me, I read the application or the, the description. And I was like, wow, okay, this is perfect. So then I really could kind of concentrate my energy to that application because I had already decided what I wanted to do and that it would fit like what I was striving for. Um, so I was in a round of interviews and so the, the position was for a junior research group leader in the NeuroCure Cluster of Excellence. So the DFG, the, the German Research Foundation, funds clusters of science. I don't know if you've covered these in your in your podcast. I mentioned it a little bit because NeuroCure is always, they have so many great scientists. So I always invite people from there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so a little bit, yeah. So these these giant clusters they they receive lots of research funding and they can they can propose different ways of implementing that funding, and the NeuroCure in the latest cycle said we want to in, invest in in junior scientists and, and kind of invest in the next generation of future professors, and so they had they put into to link with a number of research institutions in Berlin and also in Brandenburg. Um, to kind of hire junior, re junior research group leaders. And so my position is through the cluster, but it's at the German Institute of Human Nutrition. So I'm a junior group leader there as a, an affiliate to the cluster. Yeah, and, and like I said, it's really this space between postdoc and professor. So a junior group leader leads the lab But there are still a lot of things that I'm technically not allowed to do that a, like a full professor can. And obviously, I also have a time-limited contract. 
it's just the next step beyond postdoc in terms of leadership. And I mean, the really nice thing about it, I, I, it, it is a great position to have because you get the the freedom and the flexibility to build up your own ideas and, and lead your own research program. And you're, you know, you're, you're supported financially and um, to, to make those things happen, um, which is really great. The time also flies so much faster at this point, because when you open a completely new lab, it takes at least a year or two before you're really getting things um, running. And then a junior group position is usually only five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and occasionally you can have added time onto it, but it is it is never going to be itself a permanent position. Okay. So how do you decide who gets to work with you? Because if it's your lab, technically, can you also invite people that you want to work with you? Or do you have special criteria? Do you prefer people who maybe also don't, um, never took neurobiology classes so you don't feel so alone you know <laughs> or um yeah like do you get to decide all of that on your own because you said if you don't get to do every single thing by yourself because there's still other people right um is that something that you can decide yeah so who i hire i can decide um i don't i'm not the only one who decides so i've made it a, a point with my group that uh, hires are group decisions so when people are in, so I, I might shortlist the candidates, but then everybody meets the whole group and everybody gives me their input uh, because it, it is a future colleague of us um, all. But yes, in this position, I write the, descri- yeah. the job descriptions and I help post them places to recruit candidates and then they get sent to me and I make the decision about who to, to interview mm-hmm. to join the group. Because I'm at a research institute that's in the name is nutrition, and we're affiliated with the University of Potsdam that has a very big, wonderful nutrition science program. A lot of the applicants that I get have a nutrition background, but I I have tried to recruit more in the neuroscience background just because of the techniques that that we have and in, in what we use um, that being said i i mean i do have at least one student um who came from a nutrition background um but i also have a number that came from backgrounds just in neuroscience that had no nutritional background i i've made it a point to really try to be diverse in in the the people and the candidates that i and I invite to join the group. Yeah, and and until now, I yeah, I I, I don't know. I I shortlist the candidates, and then I see who who is the combination of good science and good fit. I I think you can have a really great scientist, but if they are a terrible fit for the group, it won't work out. And you could have someone who's a really good fit for the group. Well, no, you could their have background doesn't. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but their background doesn't fit well enough, and then it also won't work out. So it's finding this balance of mm-hmm. good fit and enough understanding or or capacity for for diving into kind of the new field it's always difficult to make this decision about someone's fit in the span of two interviews for example that all sounds like a lot of work and paperwork (laughs) and if you also have to manage like where the research is going and the practical stuff like how you make that work and who to hire and how to spend that money and all these things does it take time away from your own research do you actually get to do stuff in the lab or do you have to do everything around it so other people can do it yeah so at the moment uh i am doing a lot and in the lab 
and a lot in the office. <laughs> so I don't <laughs> okay. really have a good balance right now, to be honest. But I have had to... So an example of this, when I first started my lab, I was so excited at the opportunity to hire people to work with me um, on these ideas that I think are you know, really relevant to study. And the first call for applicants that I had, um, I interviewed everybody face to face. Well, it was all online at that point because of, because of COVID. But I called, I, let's not say everybody, 90% of the applicants, I spoke with them. Mm-hmm. And that took so much time <laughs> um, because, it, I mean, if you have 40 applicants and you give a 20 minute call to 40 applicants, but then mm-hmm. from those 40, then you still have to narrow down to the ones that you want to have like a more intensive interview. It was a huge time investment. And and I realized that it was a non-sustainable time investment because of all of the other things that have to be done in the lab. So now I have a little bit, my filter is a lot higher. Uh, so in order to pass the filter to the potential for the in-person interview, there are lots of criteria that I look for just because I I, I don't have enough time in the day to, yeah. to, to do all of that, um, to talk with everybody. I would love to. I just... It's not possible, especially because I still like to do stuff in the lab. So in mm-hmm. order to have space for that, I have to cut it down somewhere. So you do your you so you do your own research, but on top you manage everybody else's stuff too, no? Right? You said you like a meeting organizer, and you you, you mean you support your lab workers, I guess, or like yours. I don't know. You 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 group, I guess. You know, you're probably the one, the first person that they come to. <laughs> When they don't know how something's going to go or if they just need, you know, moral support or they want to have your input on something they're working on and all these things like that must be so hard. I mean, what is a normal day in a life of a group leader? Like you come to work and then let's say you're not currently hiring someone, but what is your like an example of your day look like? Yeah, so I, I I guess for for me my day because so I I bike into the lab. I am not a morning person. I get there at around <laughs> nine, uh, between eight forty five and nine fifteen. I'm usually in the lab. As much as I hate it, it's usually first an email. Like, is there is there anything that's a fire right now that needs to be put out, or or you know anything that I can get off the list? And to be honest, like in the last couple of weeks, it's it's a lot of. Uh, budget-related stuff, ordering-related stuff. Um, this is one thing that I wasn't prepared for so much. I had some experience with working with budgets as a postdoc, but now it's a, it's a whole new level, right? Because at, as a new group leader, you also have to understand all of the rules and regulations or as much of them as possible when it comes to ordering and uh, the competition in the market. And, you know, then not just the ordering, but the following through with the finances, calculating in when you make a budget for a grant, the Mehrwertsteuer was one oh, thing that I didn't think about. Yeah. And then immediately everything costs 20% more than you budgeted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's just getting like, usually in the last few weeks, those are some of the things to take care of. Or I, I mean, in my, in my office, I have a whiteboard where I have like everything written down that I need to take care of. So it's, you know, chunk out some time to, to write up a, a paper and, and it can't just be write up a paper. I realize now that I, I really have to say, okay, write one paragraph of that paper today because <laughs> 
if you just put like these huge blocks up on the board, they, they don't get done because they're tasks that are yeah. very large and they just keep getting pushed off. Um, I joke about this a lot because I, you know, when I need a, a break from the computer work, I will get up and I will like walk through the offices or the lab and, and just check in with people. And it's quite often that like, if I need to go talk with one person and they're in their office and they, everybody in my group shares an office with at least one other person. And so I will go and I will meet with that person about whatever topic they're the experimental plan or they had a question about something and then i will get up to leave and it's like oh rachel you're here can you meet with me oh yeah <laughs> you're here and then you know three hours later i make it finally back to, to my office to to work on on other things that i need to take care of um and i i mean for right now like i said i'm also i'm also working as as uh, in the lab doing experiments so I will also have, I've had some weeks recently where I need to be in at 7 or 7.30 and run animal behavioral experiments until noon, and then I get out, and then from noon onwards, I have to complete all of the normal stuff that I would do on a normal day. Um, so I, yeah, I, I work quite late in the in the lab because, because I, like I said, I am, I'm not a morning person, I'm a night owl, and so I really feel like I hit my stride at like 2. <laughs> Okay, okay. Um, so so that I really feel like I can maybe three, let's say I usually have lunch around two. Um, so at, at three until eight. And so that's when I really feel like, okay, I can now get stuff done. But it's every day something different. It's balancing, you know, the the people. So not just the, the science, but, you know, for a lot of my lab, um, almost all of them are not from Germany. So sometimes I'm their only point of contact for like, how do I deal with this? Um, <laughs> and it's usually something not at all related to science, right? So the housing crisis in Berlin is become a huge issue for for many people uh, in my group so sometimes I'm consulting on topics that I I you know I I have no idea what to do but you you still have to in the mentoring role you still have to to be a support in some way right um, yeah and this this in combination can actually be very taxing uh, at the end of the day. So I usually get home and then I like cook dinner and then I, I don't know, I need something for an hour to shut off my mind. Um, and then I crash. <laughs> <laughs> I I know what you mean. Like for me, like my partner calls this con context switching. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to do this and we have to do that and then this. And I always thought I was quite good at it. But now that I'm also wearing more hats for like different stuff I'm doing, it's sometimes I'll work on something and then someone texts me or sends me an email. And it's like, actually, what about this? And I'm like, ah, what? <laughs> like suddenly I have to think about this now. And I noticed it's like a it's like a huge cause of stress for me. But because I'm the person in charge, it's like yeah. I I have to, you know, like I can't make these other people <laughs> or like make people I work with just be like well deal with it <laughs> you know and like, like they need me so yeah I know what what you mean when you're like three hours later or something you get back to your <laughs> office and you can you know then try to work on on your thing again but yeah no, I, I understand um and you mentioned your work with animals and I want to go a little bit into that because I know many many people who work with different animals and mostly it's um mice I think my last speaker also worked with mice we didn't specifically talk about this but I think it's a really interesting topic because I would like to ask you how you know how that works so could you explain the 
process? Like, why do you use mice for your research, for example? Yeah, so so we work in mouse models most explicitly for the combination of scientific techniques and tools that we're that we have developed in the research field that allow us to look at a certain molecular level um, that we couldn't do in in other species. But also, I'm a neuroscientist, so we study the brain, and mm-hmm. um, it is not a simple. It is not possible to simply biopsy the brain from a human. There are there are situations where you might, as a researcher, be able to get access to brain tissue, but to really understand how, for example, a, a particular food, a diet, is affecting the brain, we can only do this in animal models uh, at the molecular level. So if we want to understand how the neurons themselves are changing, how the connections between them are changing, in, in humans, there, there, there have been massive advances in brain imaging, but it's still not at the cellular level, right? Mm-hmm. It is still at a, a much, much less, uh, less resolution, let's say. We, so because I studied the effects of maternal nutrition on brain development, there have been actually a lot of developments in parallel in human studies and in mouse studies that some of the things that we've uncovered in mice have now, because we knew where to look at, have been assessed in humans, and the effect is the same. Because, again, I study the effect of, of nutrition and development, and I know that overnutrition is bad for brain development. Mm-hmm. I could not ethically run a human study, for example, that I put one group into an overnutrition group because this would never be allowed because we know right okay it would have a negative effect now in the thing is in my group we're really under we're really trying to understand what are all of the molecular players so what what are the particular proteins that are changed or how for example are the synapses changing between the neurons or the the level of activity of different neurons in different parts of the brain in response to to food or to to changes in in the environment and you really have to have a highly controlled environment to do this in so that you have one specific diet that you have uh, more or less the the same genetics so that you don't have the influence of different uh, SNPs so small changes in in the DNA that would result in in changes in the in the physiology um, that that we're assessing in the end so I think it's also in the in the direction of techniques as well and, and tools over the last decades there have been massive developments in animal models that allow us to mark particular neurons so that we can say we're only interested in understanding the function of these neurons in the brain and so we can put in a we we can put in a, a gene or a protein that allows us to see those cells or now we have the capability that we can put in a sensor so that we can see when those cells are active in real time so that we, you know, aren't looking at the overall brain activity, but we're looking at particular neurons that we're interested in. Because at the end of the day, also, those specific neurons, for example, if we know they have a role in food intake, those are the ones that are targeted by particular drugs that are on the market. It's not, it's not the whole brain that's affected. It's just the ones that respond to um, some treatment that's available. So we really have to understand at the mole- molecular level, how are those neurons responding to food intake or to treatment or to um, fasting or to stress or, or whatever environmental change that's happening. And this level of like controlling the environment is is almost impossible in the human condition. Mm-hmm. 
because we all have different experiences every day. We all have different eating patterns and um, and food choices and different levels of stress. Or um, there's a lot more variability in humans. So we focus on animal models, but it is ultimately my goal to be able to kind of translate and reverse translate between humans and animals. Because ultimately, I do want to have a, a positive influence on society. But we have to really understand the the basis, the molecular level changes that are occurring to get to that point. And um, you mentioned ethics earlier. Is it really, I mean, there must be a lot of paperwork. Is it, do you have, you probably have to explain why you want to do this research and why it's important. And um, from the past, talking to other scientists who work on the brain, they all said like the paperwork is absolutely crazy. And if you are <laughs> leading the group, do you also have to write all of these, yeah, all of these statements and all of, like, do you have to, work with an ethics committee or how does this work like because someone has to approve it right that you that you do this and are you in charge of doing that as well yeah yeah so this is actually a very huge piece of my job um because <clears throat> the animal ethics applications have to be written in german in germany oh um, <laughs> i see and so <laughs> since none of my team or almost none of my team can speak german it quite often gets passed on to me to make so we usually write them together in English in the lab so everybody understands what's going into the application but the end product has to be in German um, and yes these are super extensive uh, applications so it doesn't matter for example the 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 number of animals that you're requesting if it's five or 500 uh, for a particular experiment you have to do the same level of justification mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so there are just sections about the state of the field what do we not know why is this important um, but then you also have statistical sections where you have to say based on the literature or, or our hypothesized effect size like these would be the end value that we would need for this particular study and this is why um, and then you have to really detail every single intervention that you're proposing they all get rated with the severity class and you have to talk about the housing conditions you have to talk about the veterinary staff you have to talk about each individual who be, will be working on that animal ethics application um, you know their background training their skill set how many years of experience they have can they actually do the things that they're proposing um, and so I, I would say each one of these that we write is somewhere between 50 and 75 pages Mm -hmm. um, depending on the complexity of it, plus then a lot of like extra paperwork that has to do with, so each individual researcher has to fill out a Personenbogen, so that defines their their education history, their training history, and what they're able to do, and then this is um, also, everything is also then signed internally and read through by our and animal wel welfare officers. So it's a very intense process to, to write all of this, and then when it's done, we have to send all of it to uh, the the authorities um, and the authorities have what's called the paragraph 15 commission and this is a collection of vets scientists uh, animal activists uh, lay people from the community and they're the ones ultimately that each of these applications go to and they make a decision as a committee um, yes or no but also for every application they can ask any question so they can say you know, this isn't very clear, or you proposed using this intervention, but this intervention has also been used, why you need a justification why you're not doing that one. And so it can take many months back and forth. I, I mean, luckily, the, the interesting thing about this in Germany is that the, pa the paperwork itself, like the, 
the framework for each of these applications is exactly the same in every state. But the interpretation okay. of it in every state is completely different. So I had experience in Cologne and now in Brandenburg, and I have many colleagues in, in Berlin, and, and I hear how, how different it is. Like what is expected in one state is not expected in another. And so it's also just learning a completely new system, even though amazingly, like the formats for everything are exactly the same. So, yeah. <laughs> But I think it's really... Um, important to talk about and I think sometimes scientists are a bit hesitant it can be a hot topic like we all benefit from research like that but not everybody wants to hear <laughs> about it but and also I talked to my parents about this ages ago when I interviewed another scientist who worked on mice and they were so surprised you know, that there's like a whole ethics committee and all of that. I think lots of people believe if you're a scientist, you get to do whatever you want. You're just like, I want a bunch of mice and then mice appear and you just like work on it and you do your research, Holy. but they're, you know, and there's so many layers to that and people who regulate what you're doing. So you're doing it well and ethically, ethically um, sound, you know, mm -hmm. and I think lots of people just don't know They just think, oh, it's part of the science. So it just, you know, like it just happens. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I tried to talk about this actually with, with people because I think the perception of what we're able to do it yeah. is exactly that, that, it, that we just order animals and do whatever we want. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case at, at all. Actually, mm -hmm. there's a lot of paperwork and review and questioning that goes into every ethics application. I mean, also from the science point of view, like we we strive to do the best science we can, right? And so having a well-controlled experiment with the, you know, that we that we've given thought to the statistics and the done the power calculations to understand, okay, if this is hypothetically the effect that we're anticipating to see. We will only see it if we run it in this group size uh, of animals. And also, I mean, at the end of the day, like as a scientist, we want the experiment to run well. So the welfare of the animals is important to everybody that works in my group and every scientist that I know. And so I think this bad rap that scientists that work in animal models get is is a little, it makes, a, it shines us in a very negative light when it's like, we also want everything to be as optimal as possible, right? Because we understand the importance of having an optimal environment for the animals for the experiments. And I think it's also this, we see the, the, the long-term, the long-term game goal, right? That a discovery is not something that, that, that a discovery at a fundamental level that has a human impact is not something that happens in one experiment on one day. Right? It is the culmination of many small steps forward that after 40 or 50 years, you can reflect back and say, okay, this started in a cell model that then went to an animal model, like a, a lower organism that went up the chain that eventually made a huge difference in how we treat humans. A lot of people in society don't see the connection between, they don't see the, the whole flow of work. They might see, okay, my my family member has cancer and they were treated with this drug and they recovered from cancer, but they don't see like in order to get to that point that we understood the molecular mechanisms to create that drug, to treat that cancer, we spend many years working in animal models and in cell culture to 
actually develop that. And so I think this huge divide between like, the endpoint that everybody sees and everybody wants access to and the like how long it takes to get there, that's what's what's really difficult to convey because we live in a society where everything is instant, right? Yeah, yeah. Where it's so easy to just get a result for something, but uh, true fundamental science is not something that you can just Google. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for sure, like I, I mean, I grew up watching all these movies, you know, from like the 90s, like mm-hmm. Outbreak and even, even like Legally Blonde, I think in the second one, she wants to rescue like a chihuahua from a lab, you know, and there are all these things where I think people watch these movies and they think you have a bunch of um, little monkeys in cages, you know, and that it's not actually like that i think it's um it's important to communicate but just the thought of the the movies who who did so much damage to scientists who work on these important things because again like when i think of animal models even though i know better i, I keep thinking of these movies you know like outbreak or, or something like that and this is the, one of the first things i picture and then i immediately correct myself but it's so ingrained so, of course, if someone who doesn't really pay attention or ask questions, that, that's, you know, they'll they never find out that it's not like that. It's just... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I try when I give, when I give talks, um, especially to the public, I always talk about the dimension of animal research. But I also try to include some videos from, from behavior to really show, like, what we're capable of doing and why it's... I mean, it's for us scientifically very interesting, but also there are some things that we do that even to someone who's not in science at all, they can see it and say, oh, wow, that, I didn't know that that was possible. And that, for example, one video that I like to show um, is, is it's from a study that was using oh, optogenetics, so where they could use a light to stimulate certain neurons in the brain. And this, this group discovered that um, if they shine this light on one particular type of neuron in the brain, those animals would immediately only eat fat food, high fat food. Um, what? So they had, they would have a choice of three foods, and as soon as the light went on, they would eat high fat food. And when it went off, they would stop. And then they would change the order of all the foods, and then they would turn the light on, and that animal would only go to high fat food again. When I show this video, it's usually like this kind of like wow, like okay, my and reaction then, basically. <laughs> And then most people, I, like, I often get like, okay, what are those neurons? Because that's totally me, right? So, or, you know, like, maybe maybe I have something, I, I need to have those neurons looked at because I always, if there's a choice, I always pick that type of food too. And then, you know, it leads to this conversation of like, in talking about it, that seems like some a very easy next step, right? That we could immediately go and say, okay, it's these neurons and we could do this and that will stop you from choosing an unhealthy diet. But ultimately at the end, then, you know, it comes out, okay, how long did it take us to get to that point? Um, what else do we know about those neurons? Oh, there's so much that we don't know about them that we cannot go to that next step until we understand all of the fundamental biology. Um, but I think really having this visual about what it looks like is helpful because like like you said, in, in most movies or news or not, or like pop culture, mm-hmm. the, the images that are, that are put out are put out to get a very strong emotional response from you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are the usually ones that you take very negatively um and so i'm just trying to create this 
this very strong emotional response in a more positive direction or more, you know, driving like curiosity or, or the, like the, wow, I didn't know that we could do that. Um, because I think that that's an important thing that we need to do, uh, especially now. Yeah. And, um, you already went into it automatically a little bit, but how, I mean, When you do stuff with the public, you never know. I mean, the public is a <laughs> it's a big term, but you never really know who's gonna be there listening to you. There's always there's always gonna be someone who rejects what you say, of course. And I feel like you've done a really nice job even now explaining why it's important, what what it can lead to. But how do you deal with skeptics? Like, what if you explain it in um, a way everybody can understand and see the benefits what if a skeptic is like no but okay we see it in mice and you say maybe this can help people but what if not isn't this all like shouldn't you try and do it more ethically you, you know like there are always people who, who will reject what you explain and um, I mean we have this in, in all kinds like climate crisis and in anything really so um, you would probably not be the only person dealing with that but do you have like a special way if you can't show a nice video um, of how to deal with someone who is very negative about it i would say in my experience the majority of people are are not necessarily for or against they're in a gray area in the middle right and if they don't hear enough people that explain to them the positives or the benefits then they will start to skew in in the negative direction, let's say. So I, I think that's why it's it's important for me that when I talk about my research, I make it explicit also that I do it in animal models, right? Because I think I, I have had, for example, a few times a situation where I've mentioned it to like my neighbor and then my neighbor is like, what? You, you work in mice, but then they, I can see their, their brain processing this information because they're like, I know you and I like you you work in mice right <laughs> yeah. and they like bring this together and then and then they you know if they ask about it then and then we can talk about it that they realize that these things can all exist in you in harmony together um so i would say like truly like very negative people i've only had the experience once with uh, with someone on twitter that they really were impossible to have a discussion with mm -hmm. um but i think for me it's just always important to stay on a very neutral and informative level and not in a defensive or, or mm -hmm. negative or argumentative level and i think what's really great is that trying to fill this space are like uh protest deutschland and that there are people that dedicate their careers to to being able to step in in these situations and, and provide facts and and materials and um because i think those people that are really really against it uh or or very negative about it all that we can do is stay proactive ourselves right to avoid our to avoid from going to a to a level that we, that we don't want to work at i don't want to be in a constant fight with someone and say you know your ideas are are completely wrong um but just to always respond in a sort of 
if you, you know, have you read this? Because this suggests that that is not the case, what you're, what you're arguing. Because I, I think what would be the worst is if you fight with someone at their level like that, and then oh, yeah. the gray yeah. area only sees that fight, right? Um, so I, I don't know. I think it's like Michelle Obama says, when they go low, we go high, right? To, like, to always stay on the side of science and fact and and that we can support um the the work that we do with many many years of experience in this regard that fundamental discovery is necessary in all aspects like not even in a biological aspect right we had to study animal models to understand things about messaging and distribution and um so there are so many things that are also completely unplanned for that take place in fundamental fundamental research in, in animal models um, that sometimes you don't even know the benefit until many years after. So, in, and I guess in, in dealing with people that are, are particularly negative, it's just important for, for us to always stay on a, on a sort of positive um, and factual level because at the end of the day, we're also scientists. That's how we're supposed to operate. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's and, true. And, and I think, again, it's just really critical that we do talk about the work that we do so that the, the space of people, the, the majority of people um, that are in the middle, that they can see both sides um, so that we ensure that there's an enough informed community out there um, that it can be a discussion. No, I think it's good because um, explaining where you're coming from and, you know, I think it's also useful for people who deal with critics because lots of science in involves communicating that science and there's always going to be someone who's like, ugh, <laughs> you know? So I think lots, lots of people deal with that. So I think it was really interesting. Maybe we can segue right into my next question, <laughs> which would be um, what is like the most difficult part of your work or what is this what is the part of your work that you if you had a magic wand you would just get rid of it um, bureaucracy <laughs> <laughs> that is i would say 99 of the answers are that. <laughs> yeah i i mean sometimes i reflect on this like um i don't know 80 90 100 years ago a scientist uh, would wake up without an alarm, would have a cup of coffee and ponder for an hour, and then go into the to the lab, maybe do one experiment, take a break for lunch, and then go on a, an hour walk. I mean, this is why the philosophers of egg exist in Heidelberg, because it was so well known for this behavior, right? And then come back and perhaps read for one or two hours, maybe do one more experiment and then go for dinner. And that sounds lovely. That sounds like a vacation uh, <laughs> in the life of a researcher now, because uh, we're, we are expected to wear so many different hats and have so many different skills, many of which we're not explicitly trained in. I mean, we talked about this a little bit, right? Budgeting and finance and and counseling or, or, or I guess, uh, people management. Um, yeah. So in, I think Germany, especially, I think this is probably the case in many other countries, but there is a lot of bureaucracy, uh, a lot of paperwork to be done and making sure that everything is filed correctly. I think it, isn't it Germany that has the most laws in the whole world? 
I mean, um, uh, I've, I've touched on that last uh, episode, two episodes ago. I'm about to get married to a non-German and that is the most paperwork and the most frustrating, <laughs> like, a, a thing I think I've ever done. Like, I have two degrees and I feel too stupid to do this <laughs> because of all the, like, deadlines. But then if I don't hand in the paperwork at this exact moment, then a deadline could pass. But then another another like another building maybe where we would want to get married they wouldn't even give us a spot if we don't have the paperwork but the paperwork yeah. isn't even handed in you know all these things that you feel like a crazy person yeah and yeah. I've dealt with this in uh research a little bit too like I never had to manage a lab but I worked very closely with my supervisor who had to do all the paperwork for me yeah <laughs> and in insanity insanity i mean uh i studied in the u.s but all of my research has been done in germany so i don't know it any other way i assume germany is as bad as it gets because we have a reputation for all the paperwork so i believe you yeah. and it sounds crazy i mean it's also if you take this analogy right you're getting you're getting married to, to a non-german in germany and many foreigners that i know if they want to be married and live in germany they will go to denmark and yeah. get married because it's so much easier honestly i would do that i i we're too deep in that we were too deep yeah, we're too deep yeah. we can't go back but i would never do this again i would go to copenhagen yeah. and but i there. but i but i see kind of you know the potential for something similar happening in research right because there's so much bureaucracy around it and in recently so in september the eu parliament vote that was pushing for an end to all animal research by 2030 in the EU, I see this and I'm like, okay, the end result of this is that all fundamental research in animal models that still needs to take place is then going to go to a different country. It's going to go where it's still possible. And is that really what we want? Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. You know, do, do we really, because then, I don't know, and this is just my personal opinion kicking in here, but like, hey, well, actually, most of this is probably my personal opinion. <laughs> um, but if this occurs, then all of the fundamental researchers that base in this will either be forced to leave science or leave the EU. And then the EU will be in a position when something is needed. So, for example, all of the basic research that led to mRNA vaccines would take place in other countries that then would have the political power in that sense over mm -hmm, this sort mm -hmm. of technology to then put the EU potentially in a weaker position to say, please, please, please give us this, the results of these experiments and the knowledge that was gained back. And then I think that this, this will, I, I mean, I hope it doesn't because obviously I like to live in Germany and I want to be able to continue here as a scientist, but I fear that something like this will, will occur. And, and I, I don't know, it's a very, very uh, uncertain future of, of basic research, especially basic research in animals in the EU. So yeah, if I could get rid of something, it would be the bureaucracy so that I just had more space in the day to be excited about science and to, to share moments of discussion with students and postdocs and technicians um, that that see something for the first time and are proud of what they did or they're excited or they read a paper and they test something out and they come back and they're like wow look at this um, because I think that that excitement in science is something that that's the part that I want to experience more so if I could get rid of the things that don't spark joy <laughs> um, that would be great yeah thank you for mentioning everything I mean, because I ask you what the most difficult is, but you already also said what the most rewarding, you know, like to see 
uh, when something goes well and everybody in your lab being excited and discovering something for the first time. That's really lovely. What comes next to you? Do you have any higher positions that you now want to pursue? Because you said it's kind of like limbo or purgatory between postdoc and a professor. So do you want to go for a professorship after or do you want to be in this lab for as long as you can? Because you said it's like five years and you've been doing this for two years. I really like to be in a position of leadership. I feel like I sometimes not like more or less naturally gravitate to that. Like, so if I'm in a room full of people all talking and someone needs everybody's attention, I'm the first person to grab something and like get everybody's attention <laughs> because I, I see like, okay, that's the goal. We need to get to it. How do we get it done? I think ultimately I'm really interested about being in a, in a position that has more yeah. contact to more stakeholders. Uh, in the system, right? That I can uh, have an influence uh, or or a seat at the table of making decisions that impact society on a, on a level. Um, and, you know, potentially this is through a professorship, but I, I mean, as I, as I said in my, my interview, when I got this position, what if it doesn't work out? I said, you know, I'm not going to force this square block into a circle hole. Like um, I have, achieved a certain level of career success myself because of being resilient and pursuing things. And so I think that uh, it would also be possible to, to change fields if I needed to, if I was put into that position. So I don't, I don't just want to like toil away in, in a, in a whirlpool that's not going anywhere. Right. I, I do strive to like go further and have more contact to more people, to have a seat at a table, like I said, to to be able to be involved in decisions that really affect uh, a lot more people. And ideally, this would be somewhere that I can still do research. Um, <laughs> but but then I had to have a space where that research or the collective of research can then be like translated into society and talked about and discussed. So yeah, I, so it's not an explicit position. Maybe it's a professorship, maybe it's something else. Um, We'll see. But yeah, I think, I think that's that's pretty good because for me, sometimes I'm very stuck on one thing mm -hmm. and I'm not a very flexible person. Mm -hmm. So I maybe take this as a cue to remember <laughs> that as long as I do something that makes me happy, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to just be this one thing. Yeah. So I think um, it's a very good quality to be open to yeah. different ways to make that happen. So I think that's actually also a last good advice <laughs> from you. <laughs> Yeah, just taking the time to reflect on, like, what skills do I have? Like, what have I managed to do in this time? And realizing that that in itself will help you in whatever you're doing. It doesn't have to be that one thing if that one thing isn't going to work out. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for um, for all of that and taking all my questions. I know I had lots of them. <laughs> <laughs> and you answered them all to my absolute satisfaction. I'm very happy that we got to talk. And I think I learned a lot also about just you because I thought, oh yeah, because I didn't mention this in the beginning. We've met through Soapbox Science yes. and I admired you from the beginning because you're a really good speaker and the way you explain stuff. I was like, oh, I need to talk to her more about these things because it's so interesting. And um, I hope that others that listened also got the impression that they now like know more about what your position is and how maybe they could get there or you know how to work in a lab so I think um, you touched a lot of really interesting subjects today and went into detail for a lot of them so thank you for that and thank you for joining from 
hotel room <laughs> with technical difficulties, but we made it work, I think. So, yeah. <laughs> I hope you can have more coffee. <laughs> yeah, the audio cut out. <laughs> yeah, we had lots of difficulties recording. <laughs> But I would say I was super excited to be able to do this and to talk with you today. And I hope that that's, yeah, yeah it was helpful or not helpful, but interesting at the very least um, to share with your audience in, the, in this podcast. I think it's super cool that you're doing this. So um, I'm very grateful that I was able to be a part today. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I think that... Rachel is now officially gone because her audio is cut out, but that doesn't stop me from saying goodbye to everybody. So thank you for listening today. I'm going to make another cup of coffee and recover from this uh, recording, which was so interesting. But like I said, lots of difficulties that scientists have to deal with. It only makes sense that we also deal with it when we're recording a podcast. But thanks for listening, everybody. And we will yeah hear each other next episode. Thank you.